This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. It's really, really incredible. This young lady who I'd worked with, she hadn't had um, a right foot since she was born. And so we had done the procedure on her and she put on that prosthesis and she said, wow, this is kind of how it would have been like if I had ever had a right foot. And she could see her left foot and the right robotic foot go, you know, at the same time. And it, it, there was just this like wave of relief that was really exciting to see. That's Shriya Srinivasan. While she was still working for her PhD at MIT, she developed a method that makes a prosthetic limb feel much more a part of its wearer. She did it by solving the problem of how to link a prosthesis directly into the wearer's nervous system. She also performs professionally in a classical South Indian dance troupe. And she's discovered that the two worlds of biomechanics research and dancing go very well together. This is so great to be talking with you because you have this polymath instinct. You seem to be able to touch on any subject, any any activity that you become interested in and become expert at it. I'm so impressed with this. Tell me, there's this problem that I've heard you talk about, that prostheses are available, but people don't use them. Why don't they use them? Prostheses today are heavy, they're cumbersome, they're slow to move, they may require a lot of calibration, or they may not respond to the person at a timescale that's relevant. You know, it shouldn't take you a full minute to pick up a glass of water, it should take a few seconds. Mm -hmm. And so these things become very frustrating to work with, and many patients will opt for a passive prosthesis or no prosthesis at all. Um, And so, you know, between commanding the prosthesis, receiving sensory feedback, and the weight, I think those are the, you know, some of the biggest challenges. And so a lot of my doctoral work focused around building ways that surgeons could perform to actually enable patients to receive sensory feedback from their prostheses after amputation. That's an example of what I was just raving about. I mean, to explore this area, You've got to know about nerves and where they are and what they do and how the muscles work together. And it's an anatomical job and it's a computational job, it sounds like. It it, it, it amazes me. Can you give me a, a bigger picture, a clearer picture of what's different about what you do? What's the traditional way? 200 years ago, what did they do in an amputation? Yeah, sure. So 200 years ago, Uh, a surgeon would go in and make a circular cut around the site of amputation and basically discard all of the tissues at that site, distal to that site, and make a soft padded residuum. The residuum, just so I make sure I understand you, the residuum is what's left after the surgery? That's right. We hadn't thought about interfacing these limbs with fancy prostheses that could actually move digits or move the ankle We hadn't thought about um, how that prosthesis could communicate with the human body. So what I worked on was 
a new way for the amputation to be actually performed, wherein we would take the patient's native skin or the native muscles and create a biohybrid organ, which would then receive that patient's sense of touch uh, from the prosthesis. And so by constructing these sorts of new types of organs within that residuum, we're preparing the body to actually be interfaced with newer prostheses that are available today. So until you started doing this work, had the surgery changed much in 200 years? Not really. Um, amputation today is is pretty comparable to the amputations that were performed in the Civil War era when people were using wooden peg legs. So even though the end of the leg, the end of the prosthetic would sometimes look like a foot, it was essentially a peg leg, wasn't it? It had no articulation. Yeah, back in the day, there wasn't much function. Today, there are devices that have quite a bit of function. So there are prostheses that can um, do the movement of walking for you. They can grip objects. They can turn objects. So there's actually quite a bit of functionality that the mechanical prosthesis itself can perform, right? We have very advanced robotics today. What was missing, even though the limb had articulation, is it feedback? Is that the difficulty? Yeah, feedback is a big one. The other one is, you know, for the human to be actually able to send the neural signals to say, okay, move your foot down or use your first finger to pick up this object. That communication between the prosthesis and the human was missing. And so both the ability to send signals and receive feedback, um, both are lacking. So something that I have no sense of at the moment is you identify nerves or a bundle of nerves that need that stimulation so the brain knows where the limb is in space. How does the nerve get stimulated so the brain knows that? that I, I can't quite grasp that. Yeah. So within the body, muscles, for example, work together in pairs, agonist and antagonist pairs, to send signals to your brain about where your arm or your leg is in space. And so when one muscle stretches, the other muscle contracts. And the stretching muscle actually sends those signals uh, through the nerves to your brain. And so what we do is we take those same architectures of muscle pairs and have the nerves within the amputated residuum uh, feed into that. And so when those small muscles then within the amputated residuum can continue to move and signal like they normally would, they can send those signals back up to the nerves. For tactile feedback, for touch, for example, we take skin grafts and place them on the nerves. And so we actually use the human body's native parts, spare parts almost, to communicate with the nerves in a way that the nerves already understand. So the artificial limb, uh, when that moves, it would send electrical signals um, to electrodes that are implanted on these muscles or these skin grafts. Uh. And so we're using the muscle and the skin to be our conduit. And they do the translation and, and can translate the signals we want to send them into a language that the nerve responds or understands. So you don't have to identify the nerve as long as you send the signal that the nerve picks it up? That's right. That's right. A lot of stimulation technologies today try to talk to the nerve itself, but mm. take the sciatic nerve, for example, in the human, it has thousands of branches. Um, the best electrodes that are implantable today have between eight and a hundred channels. And so there's a really big challenge in terms of the resolution of information that you can send if you're trying to talk with eight or a hundred channels to a thousand plus channel system, right? 
So we're circumnavigating that entire challenge, the entire challenge of decoding and encoding into the body's nervous system because we don't yet know exactly how that works and using the muscle or the skin and its receptors that are already there to perform that functionality. So does this enable you to lift a glass of water or pick up an, an egg without breaking it with an artificial hand? Yeah, that's the hope. So right now we have a lot of animal data, preclinical studies, and we're starting to test this functionality in human beings. We've had about 25 patients that have had what's called the Amy surgery, um, and that allows them to get proprioceptive what is that? What, feedback. What does that mean? The AMI stands for the Agonist-Antagonist Myoneural Interface. It's basically the name of the construct where we recreate the muscle relationships within the body. Um, and so these patients in their initial testing are having a much better sense of their phantom limb. They're able to better communicate with a robot what they would like for that robot to do, whether that's move its foot up and down or pivot to the right or pivot to the left. Um, they're also able to get better sensory feedback from that device um, and know how much force, say, the prosthetic foot is feeling. So maybe that prosthetic foot is holding a door open and it can actually feel the weight of that door and, and send that back to the human being. But as we translate these same surgeries to the upper limbs, the goal is exactly what you said, that a person can break an egg or know exactly how much force to use when they're gripping somebody else's hand. And, uh, and these yes. are, or, or button their shirt, you know, these are trivial yeah. tasks, but for people with a robotic prosthesis, it can be a Herculean task. So when they're doing a task that requires such delicacy, such dexterity, are they consciously saying, do this, do that, now do this, now do that? Or is it more like what we have with our non-artificial hands, where we just do it? Or does it have to be given by command? Today, the technologies, uh, you do have to think step by step in terms of commanding the prosthesis. With the surgery and the um, techniques that we've developed, we're hoping that it will be natural, be seamless. And that's actually what we've seen in a lot of our initial testing. So patients try on these prostheses in the lab, and within three to four minutes of playing with it, they're actually able to get a very intuitive sense of how it's supposed to work. Huh. And we see them tapping their feet. Or, That's fantastic. Yeah. So it's very natural for them to, you know, get right into it and command the prosthesis. You must be so excited by that. That's just, to see it, that happen. It to was see somebody, incredibly rewarding to see, yeah. Yeah. To, to, what are the reactions of the patients who have that experience? It, it's it's really, really incredible. Um, I think for me, the most touching was um, this young lady who I'd worked with. She hadn't had um, a right foot since she was born. And so we had done the procedure on her and she put on that prosthesis and she said, wow, this is kind of how it would have been like if I had ever had a right foot. And she could see her left foot and the right robotic foot go, you know, at the same time. And it, it, there was just this like wave of relief that was, that was really exciting to see. I'm talking with Shreya Srinivasan, who did her doctorate degree in the lab of Hugh Herr at MIT's Media Lab. Hugh himself is a double amputee. When he was 18, he lost both legs below the knee to frostbite while he was trapped by a blizzard on Mount Washington. 
He went on to become a pioneer in developing robotic prostheses, including his own computer-controlled prosthetic legs. I asked Shreya if Hugh himself is a candidate for the technique she developed that would allow the nerves in his upper legs to directly communicate with his robotic lower legs. Yeah, that's the plan. So the version of the surgery that I developed could actually be applied to folks that have already had an amputation. So they could go in and quote-unquote upgrade their physiology and their anatomy um, and have these muscle grafts constructed that can allow them to communicate and receive sensory feedback. And so the plan is that as we advance this and have all the technology in place, Hugh would like to get this type of a surgery performed on himself so that he can use some of the fancy robots that the lab builds um, that are neurally controlled and robotically actuated. That's really wonderful, Lucy. There you were working in his lab. He, I guess he was mentoring you. And then the product of your work now comes back to help him. That's like a, a microcosm of what science can accomplish, isn't it? Yeah, it was a very, I mean, he's a wonderful person and it's a very inspiring environment to work in because you can really see the impact of, of the science and the engineering come to life and being able to talk with people that um, have those kinds of conditions and, you know, hear Hugh's experiences on things or just listen to, you know, the challenges of, say, you know, feeling around or stepping off of a curb or balance issues and, and having such a one-on-one type relationship with those um types of issues and types of people really helps frame the way you you think about engineering a device. It makes it very human-centric, very pain-point-oriented. You're working on a whole other area now, it sounds to me. What has what your work shifted to now? So I currently work at the Langer Lab at MIT, and I work on ingestible and implantable devices for the GI tract, so the stomach and the esophagus, the small intestine. And I'm focused now on talking and communicating with those nerves, that entire set of, um, you know, so the, the, the stomach, for example, has more nerves than the brain does, the stomach and the intestines do. You're too. kidding. This, yeah, I'm, yeah. I've never heard this before. That's amazing. Yeah. So why why does it what does it do with all those nerves? It controls everything from how much you want to eat to your mood to how well you digest to how energetic you are. Um, there's emerging research that the gut brain axis is one of the most um, you know central things to the way you feel day in and day out. Right. That which includes the microbiome. That's right. That's exactly right. Does your work include the interface between the microbes and the nerves? Not yet. Um, I'm trying to chat just with the just work just work with the nerves so far, Um, Uh but the microbiome is certainly a consideration because it has a huge influence. And what do you mean that you you're making machines that run around in the in the in the gut? Yeah, uh, sort of, basically. <laughs> I, I, I assume they're very small machines, right? They're, they're basically ingestible pills that would be able to uh, electrically stimulate and, and perhaps even gather information from the nervous system um, to affect a variety of different disorders, but you know, specifically focused on things around motility. So similar to movement in the peripheral limbs, we can control how fast your stomach processes food 
um, based on its motility rate, how fast it moves and contracts and processes the food. So the only and, thing I'm the only motion I'm aware of in the the gut is peristalsis. Is there other motion that you're worried about? That's the main one. And for a lot of people with diabetes um, or other neurological disorders, uh, that motility, that peristalsis is actually significantly decreased and mm. can lead to a number of different metabolic effects downstream. Oh, so it sounds like, it sounded to me like a completely different area, but I can see how you were drawn to it through your work, your mm -hmm. other work mm -hmm. on nerves. But to go from prosthetic limbs to digesting food sounded like a big leap. It is a little bit of a, a leap on the surface, but one surface layer, it's basically um, thinking about communicating with the nerves, whether that's in the peripheral system or whether that's within the gut. And I think if we can hack into the nervous system and learn how to manipulate it, how to listen to it, um, we could find various therapeutic options for diseases for which today we only have pharmacologic options, right? The only way that we really treat the GI tract is through drugs or surgery in very extreme cases. Um, but there's a variety of modifications that we could do um, if we were able to uh, signal to the nervous system that perhaps you're not actually hungry and you should eat, be eating less today, or you need to digest this food faster and absorb more nutrients from it, um, or maybe you know, today you're retaining too much water and we should actually let some of that go. So there's a lot of different applications for which this would be useful. Let me ask you about work you're doing now. You were doing some very timely work, weren't you, on ventilators. What did that involve? Last March, when COVID surged in Boston, we were approached by clinicians who said, you know, we're almost running out of vents in the ICU. Is there a solution here? Is there something we can do? So Colleagues at Harvard Medical School and MIT and Philips uh, Research came together and we developed a system that allows one ventilator to be multiplexed to multiple patients mm. while customizing the therapy to each patient so that it's safe and efficacious for treatment. So we developed it, we tested it on the bench and in ICU ventilators, in animal models, um, and now we have a actual product that spun off with a nonprofit called the Project Prana Foundation. And we're starting clinical trials soon, both here in the US, as well as a number of countries that have demonstrated a great need and interest in, in bringing this to their systems. Can you refit an existing ventilator to do this? Mm -hmm. This works in consort with existing ventilators. It just doubles the capacity of those ventilators. Wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. you, we got we have to clone you, I think. That's, that's really, <laughs> you're solving many varied problems. It's great. Yeah, I, I mean, we just jumped in at the time because it felt very, it felt like the right thing to do. There was a lot of need. And as an engineer, it felt like the right thing to do to jump in and, and help with that. When we come back from our break, Shriya Srinivasan tells me how her other career as a performer of classical South Indian dances helps her research, and how her research has helped her fellow dancers. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. 
The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Shriya Srinivasan. You know, when you were talking about the brain just now, you reminded me that I think I heard you say something once about your use of your right brain and left brain, probably metaphorically you were speaking. What was that? So on the side, I am a professional Bharatanatyam dancer, which is a South Indian classical style of dance. That's something I've been doing as I grew up and and really came to love it. I started a dance company in, um, in undergrad in my college years. And, you know, a lot of my dancing and, and all that practice has made me intuitively aware and intimately uh, connected with movement and feedback mm. and, and all of these sorts of biomechanics type um, processes. So that all came from an artistic side. Um, and then when I started doing biomechanics research, it had this nice confluence that I had not planned or expected, um, but they played very well together. And then I, as I started working with patients, there would be things from my dance technique or dance practice that would suddenly pop in and, you know, be something that would help the way we were testing or helping with rehabilitation. Um, and, and so it's just been a nice uh, side activity as well as, as, as passion. Um, but they've had an interesting confluence over the years. It seems to be an extremely difficult discipline to learn that style of classical dance. How ancient is it? Uh, it dates way back to the 2000 BC times wow. um, in India. It does take quite a bit of training, about 10 years before you're really good to present anything on a, on a professional stage. And I've seen videos of you dancing, and it, it's, it's exquisite. It's elegant and expressive. I've heard you say that there are lyrics to the songs and story is told, and it's often not a solo dance but a whole company of dancers telling a story. You said once it's like a musical comedy in our culture. Yeah, it's like musical theater. Are these ancient stories? Are they stories that go back a long time? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, a lot of the stories that are presented are mythological and from religious texts or from ancient mm. texts. Uh, more recently, there's been an emergence of uh, material and content that is relevant to today's, you know, um, social themes, uh, kind of daily sorts of occurrences. Um, you know, we, we, last year I helped produce a work on global warming called Vivartha Transformations. And it was literally, you know, we traced the history of the Big Bang and, you know, the formation of different types of geographies and landscapes and elements, and then all the way to the current day where, 
you know, through various means, we are contributing to climate change and the earth is having these unpredictable natural disasters and yada, yada. Um, and so you can present very relevant themes as well. Um, the mime and the language and the technique allows for really a depiction of any type of story. How did you get into that? Did, did, did you do it as a child or did you begin learning very young? My mother was a very acclaimed professional dancer in India and uh. runs a large school here in the U.S. So it's something that was uh, around the house as I was growing up and I, I, I grew up dancing. That explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things that interested me that I saw you do in an interview was explain the difference between the musical scale that we're all familiar with in our culture and the musical scale in the Indian culture. Mm. Could you demonstrate that for me? Yeah, sure. Mm. So in the Western, there are the same seven notes, um, but they're rather flat, right? So you have do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. In the Indian tradition, the Carnatic tradition, specifically the South Indian tradition, the nuance is especially focused on the space between the notes. And so we have the same seven notes, Sarigamapadanisa, but we actually undulate each each note. So Sarigamapadanisa, Sanidapamagarisa. And so the music sounds very different because we do a lot between the space between the notes. And so you could have the same seven notes in two different keys or ragas, and they could sound very different based on the way the notes are handled or treated. That's, that explains a lot to me, too. I, I've, I've been hearing it for decades and didn't realize what I was uh, hearing. Mm -hmm. that's, that's great. The similarity between the work you do and the work that you're steeped in as a dancer, really, they really do complement each other and yet they just happened by accident yeah 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 it, it was uh it was pure chance i think that i started working with hugh um i had never thought about working in a biomechatronics group or um but when i came to graduate school i, I knew i wanted to do something that was very much focused on that translational medicine aspect um, and found myself loving the kind of work that he was doing. Um, I'd seen a lot of people with movement disorders in my own family and, and through my travels, and so wanted to work on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that has come out of this is I now teach a short workshop for the dance world about better body tech, body conditioning and strengthening technique to preserve the muscles and joints better as uh, for dancers. Um, cause a lot of us find that, find ourselves having injuries because of the chronic and repetitive type of motion that, that we perform. Now, did you figure out what to tell them based on what you've learned about the way the system works in your work in the lab? Yeah. A lot of, um, physiology that I've learned through classes. Um, I'd done a little bit of research on the side as well. Um, and then incorporating elements from my research. So what would be an example? So Indian dancers, for example, sit in what is second position in ballet um, for for the majority of the pieces. Second and, position. Is second position Charlie Chaplin's feet? I can't remember. Um, 
you know the, how the two the toes point out and you make a V with your feet? Is that saying that's position? right? Well, I th- hang on. I think I might um, might be misquoting second position here. Uh, oh, I, actually, I'm, I'm the one misquoting it. I'm sure. Sorry, no, no. It, it's like second position, but a plie in second position. Ah, yeah. And so for that, there's a lot of synergistic muscles that should be strengthened to execute the footwork, for example. And, and we don't necessarily focus on strengthening those synergists, whereas we should. And so a lot of what I talk about is how to strengthen those effectively and for what movements you need to think about activating certain muscle groups to better move with agility or, or protect your knees or your ankle. So you've devised exercises that you should do before you put too much stress on those muscles? That's right. That's right. And I think, you know, the biggest component is just awareness. Um, Mm. Most dance teachers aren't trained necessarily in physiology or anatomy. And so having a little bit of that perspective and just recognizing when you're using a certain muscle group and working a certain way, um, even that can prevent injury and also improve your technique. seems like each one of these areas that you've worked in or are working in now is a life's work in itself. But I'm still tempted to ask you if just before you go to sleep at night, do thoughts occur to you about what other nerves in the body you could start looking into? It does. It does. I I think about this a lot. Um, I've always been fascinated by, you know, the nerves control the way you think, right? And that's ultimately Uh, like the highest form of control. Um, so I, I do think about the other options in the body. What, what, what are you thinking about? Um, sometimes I think about stimulating some of the nerves within the diaphragm and, and, and the thoracic cavity in, in terms of treating disorders that uh, are related to breathing. Um, for paralysis and ALS and some of those conditions where that can become a life-threatening um, defect. Um, there's also quite a bit of interest, you know, in vagal nerve stimulation. So this is the vagus nerve, which controls a number of different organs, your lungs, your heart, most of your GI tract. And then it has been shown to have significant um, influence in, in mood, anxiety, and a lot of brain function. What can you tell me about what I've read about activity in the microbiome in the gut somehow transmitting either information or stuff up the vagus nerve into the brain and affecting activity in the brain. Yeah, there's there's definitely research showing that the changes in the microbiome do signal um, along the vagal nerve and alter brain function. It's unclear as to what those mechanisms are and exactly what changes lead to what effects and so I think we need a bit more basic research to discover those, those mechanisms before we can look at them from a therapeutic standpoint. Well, you have a lot of nerve to discover. That's right. <laughs> I, wish, I wish you luck as you find new sources of problems we can solve. That's so exciting. We, we've kind of come to the end of our time. But we always end our shows with seven quick questions. Are you game? They're not, they're not invasive. I'm game. I'm game. As you look back on your life, what's the first thing you can remember being curious about? 
probably how radios work. Oh, that's interesting. I remember taking one apart and trying to build my own Radio Shack version of a, of a radio and, and then using it in the car as we, as we did a road trip. And you did, it did work? It did. It was, it was a little bit uh, noisy, but it did work. <laughs> yeah, when I was a kid, we had crystal sets still, and you could get attach a, a set of headphones to this little thing, this little bit of crystal and get radio stations. Hmm. The second question, what, what do you think made you want to be a scientist? Is that you couldn't get the or num, more stations on your radio? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I loved tinkering from a young age. I liked building things, doing hands-on work. Uh, and as I kind of progressed through high school and college, I knew that I really wanted to have impact on the world through engineering um, uh, and, and just solving problems by building things. As a scientist, what was the, the best moment in your life that you've had? So far, I would say it was working with the patients who had had the uh, new amputation technique performed and just chatting with them about the improvement in their mobility and quality of life after they'd had the procedure and, and been able to try on new devices and, and really return to a life that was full of the activities that they loved. Yeah, that must that must be really wonderful to experience that. What what was the worst moment? Oh, so many. <laughs> I mean, usually it's when experiments, you know, don't work after multiple multiple weeks and weeks of troubleshooting, um, or, or finding out that you've been scooped once you're close to the end. Uh, but I think that's just part of the process. Mm. What gives you confidence? Hmm. Data, evidence, science, mm, experience. Mm, great, great. Now, here's one that really interests me a lot. And I think it interests you because you're such a communicative scientist. You, you, you seem to me to be really talented at communication. How do you think we can help more people enjoy a love of science? Uh, I think it is if, if scientists take the time to make their science accessible to the public um, and interest, especially young kids uh, and, and sustain that interest. Um, I think if the last year has taught us anything, it's that we as scientists in the scientific community need to be closer with the public in general, um, with the news, with the media, with journalists, and, and make sure that we are communicating things honestly and fairly um, and, and that we sustain that sort of trust between the two. Um, two regimes. Yeah, that's great. This has been so much fun talking with you. I've learned so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so honored. Thank you. Good, good luck with your work. You're doing a great job. No, thank you, Alan. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Shriya Srinivasan is now a member at the Langer Lab at MIT. In 2020, she won the Lemelson MIT Student Prize called Cure It. It's well worth doing a search for her on YouTube to see her not only performing classical South Indian dances, but also singing in the Carnatic style she demonstrated so beautifully in our conversation. 
This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Edward Chang. He's a neurosurgeon whose work recording directly from a person's brain enables him to decode what they're saying or hearing, which someday might enable people who can't speak to communicate. I've certainly seen in the context of my work as a physician taking care of patients that have speech and language disorders that um, it can be absolutely devastating and I really started thinking about the mechanisms, you know, thinking about what are the computations, what are the algorithms that the brain must compute in order for us to have language and speech. Now it really is starting to look like it could be practically used, um, perhaps in the future, to help people who are paralyzed and have lost the ability to communicate um, because of things like stroke or neurodegenerative conditions like Lou Gehrig's uh, disease. Dr. Edward Chang next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.